Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. This is Walt Blurs, where we take on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach, serving here with David and Tim Barton. David's, of course, America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders. Tim Barton's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. All three of us were at the Pro Family Legislators Conference a few weeks back. We had great speakers from across the nation, legislators from across the nation, exchanging ideas. It was just incredible. And we had some fantastic talks that we want to share with you, our Wall Builders radio audience. And so today we're going to pick up right where we left off yesterday with David Barton opening the conference with a talk on a tale of two cities. Let's jump right back in. We can look at the pilgrims and say, hey, these guys gave us elected government. This is something we enjoy in America today. We have the concept that they set forth. They practiced it. The other thing you find from these guys is they came up with a free enterprise because when they came, they were a congregation and they were much what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where the, the people had everything in common. And their governor, William Bradford, said, he called it communitarian. We're like a community of believers. We're sharing everything together. But he talked about how that some of them worked harder than others. And there were some in the church that didn't want to work hard at all, but they got the benefit of what everybody else was doing because they took what they had. They broke it up among all the different families. And so everybody got the same amount. And he said, you know, we need to provide everyone for his own household. And that is out of 1 Timothy 5, 8. It says, if you do not provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel and you've denied the faith. So they started providing for their own household. Also cited what John Smith had cited, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, talks about if you don't work, you don't eat. We got people among us not working. Here's the deal. You provide for your own household. And if you don't work, you're just not going to eat. So if you want something to eat, get off your tail and go do something. So that was the way they started into it. And there's lots of other economic teachings in the Bible that deal with free enterprise. Look at Jesus' teachings in Matthew 20 and Luke 19 and Matthew 25. Great economic teachings. Jesus got so many good economic teachings. And so this is where we have the first free enterprise system, free market system. And it started in 1627. This is the first free market business for a thousand years, essentially. This is where you see it start is in Massachusetts. And Governor Bradford said that within two years of having gone to this free market business, he said their productivity increased sevenfold. He said there never was a time after that in Massachusetts when they did not have plenty. They had plenty in abundance. They did not go through any starving time. They did the first year. The first winter they got here, they got here at the wrong time of year and they didn't have any food and their food had rotted on the way over. And so of the 102 pilgrims, half of them died that first year. They had their own starving time, but they weren't like Jamestown. They didn't eat people and they didn't butcher. They just ended up dying because they nothing they could do. And, and so they never again had a time of want after they went to that free market system. The other thing you'll find with these guys is they're very significant with private property because when they arrived in December of 1620, it's wintertime. And when they got there, they did not see a single Indian. Indians had sense enough to be out of the winter and be somewhere warm where they had saved food for the year. So the pilgrims go through this really tough winter, and that's where half of them died in that first winter. And as they come out of it, they get introduced to Samoset, and Samoset introduces them to Squanto. Squanto gets them to Chief Massasoit. And so as a result of what happens, they said, you know, we passed last winter, and we're on somebody's land, but we don't know who it is, but we know it's not ours. See, they had this thing like with the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is don't take somebody else's private property. Don't even want somebody else's private property. They understood the respect for private property. God's really big on that, even in the Ten Commandments, not to count the other verses. So they said, hey, we're on somebody's land. We would really like to live here. Um, 
You think anybody would sell us some land? Is there, is there an agreement we can make with somebody? Is there a way? And, and so they sought a way to be able to purchase land. And significantly, uh, one of their later governors, about two generations later, Governor Josiah Winslow, he talked about this trait of the pilgrims. He says, Governor Josiah Winslow said, I think I can clearly say that the English did not possess one foot of land in this colony, but what was fairly obtained by honest purchase of the Indian proprietors. Everything we bought, we've got a title deed to it. And when that title deed was signed, both sides were happy with the agreement. Both sellers and purchasers, that's why we made the agreement. Uh, we actually have accumulated one of the very largest pilgrim collections in America, about 1,300 documents from that era. But we also have a lot of Indian treaties signed by chiefs selling land. We actually have the treaty from the chief who sold the Bronx to the, to the English. So I, we got the title lead for the Bronx. I don't know what we'd do with it. We don't want the Bronx. They can have the Bronx. But nonetheless, we've got the title lead for it. But they, they had title deeds for all this stuff. So this is the way that they viewed private property. Resulted that the longest lasting treaty in American history between settlers and between Native Americans was with the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians from whom they bought that land. And when the treaty was finally broken in 1676, it was the Indians who broke the treaty and not the settlers who broke the treaty. So again, the Pilgrims are very different from the image we see of most settlers in textbooks today. In addition to private property, you go to civil rights. Now, mention how that slavery is a world problem. The Pilgrims are trying to address that. And in 1641, the Pilgrims said, look, there's a slave trade going all over the world. What's going to happen if slaves come here to this colony? And so they passed a law in 1641, and they quoted directly from Exodus 21.16. Exodus 21.16 is a verse that talks about man-stealing. Man-stealing is going somewhere, stealing a person, moving them to another place, and selling them. So man-stealing is what we would call the slave trade. And they said, look, the Bible talks about this. We know it's going all over the world at this point in time. And so this is part of what they call their capital laws. These are part of the civil laws they passed. The one in the middle says, right here, it says, If any man stealeth a man or mankind, he shall be put to death, Exodus 21, 16. So this is your first really significant anti-slavery law. You get involved in the slave trade, that's a death penalty crime here. So what happened was five years later, a ship pulled into the harbor and it had slaves. And slavery is common all over the world. You can't find a slave, uh, a nation that didn't have slavery. So they get off there at the ship. They get off the ship there in Plymouth and say, hey, we got slaves. Who needs slaves? We've got lots of slaves. We've got a good deal of slaves. And the pilgrims go, you got what? We got slaves. And so the pilgrims freed all the slaves and they arrested the owners and they sentenced the owners to be executed. And the owner said, well, wait a minute. You guys don't do slavery. Everybody does slavery. You don't do slavery. We didn't know that. If we'd known that, we wouldn't have brought our slaves here. And so the pilgrims go, fair enough. You didn't know, but you do now. If you ever come back to this colony with slaves, we will execute you at that point in time. So they made it really clear that this is our law. We're not going to have slavery here. And on top of that, the pilgrims themselves took up a collection. They hired a ship and they hired a captain and a crew to take those captured slaves back wherever they had been taken from, wherever they... Pilgrims didn't have a responsibility to turn those folks back to where they'd come from. They took up a collection and did that. They sent those folks back wherever you want to go. We're going to get you back to where, where you want to go. So when you look at, at Massachusetts, at, at the Plymouth colony that became Massachusetts, this is why in 1792, this, this is called the Equality Ball. It happened in 1792. This drawing was done in 1793. 
And what it shows is Massachusetts. On the left side, the white guy there shaking hands with the black guy. The white guy is John Hancock. The black guy he's shaking hands with is a guy named Paul Cuffey. Paul Cuffey is the wealthiest black man in America. He and his sons own a global shipping business out of Massachusetts. They send ships all over the world. They do booming business. And they're celebrating the fact that in Massachusetts, blacks and whites have always been equal. Matter of fact, this man, Robert Brown Elliott, who was a congressman in the 1870s, he said, there never was a time in Massachusetts history when blacks and whites weren't equal and when blacks and whites couldn't vote. And so that doesn't fit the narrative we hear today of critical race theory in 1619. This is, this is the history we don't hear anything about. Nonetheless, this is what they did with race relations. And if you look, we're told today by critical race theory that, oh, all of, a bunch of white guys founded America. And that's true. A bunch of white guys founded America. And how do we know what these guys even look like? Because this, this painting is done in 1821, and that's 45 years after the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration, and none of them look really old in that picture except maybe Ben Franklin. So how did you get the pictures to look like they looked back 45 years earlier? Here's the deal. If you did something significant in history then, not only in America but in the world, if you did something significant in history, they painted a portrait of you. Of course, no cameras, and it costs money, time, and effort to paint a painting. But if, you, if you've done something important, we'll, we'll paint one. And so if you're a famous preacher, if you're a famous soldier, uh, if you're a famous educator, president of Harvard or Yale, uh, if you're a guy who signed the Declaration of the Constitution, we have portraits of you. We, we know what you look like. Well, we also have a lot of portraits, a whole lot of black folk from back then. And the fact that we don't know their story today or that we don't show these portraits doesn't mean that there weren't huge black influences back then. All right, folks, hang on one second. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're listening to David Barton speaking at the Pro Family Legislators Conference. We'll be right back on Wall Builders. Hey guys, we want to let you know about a new resource we have at Wall Builders called The American Story. For so many years, people have asked us to do a history book to help tell more of the story that's just not known or not told today. And we would say very providentially, in the midst of all of the new attacks coming out against America, whether it be from things like the 1619 Project that say America is evil and everything in America was built off slavery, which is certainly not true, or things like even the Black Lives Matter movement, the organization itself, not, not the statement Black Lives Matter, but the organization that says we're against everything that America was built on and this is part of the Marxist ideology. There's so many things attacking America. Well, is America worth defending? What is a true story of America? We actually have written and told that story, starting with Christopher Columbus, going roughly through Abraham Lincoln. We tell the story of America, not as the story of a perfect nation or a perfect people, but the story of how God used these imperfect people and did great things through this nation. It's a story you want to check out. Wallbuilders.com, The American Story. Welcome back to Wobblers. Thanks for staying with us. Today is the middle of a three-day program, all right? So we broke up David Barton's talk at the Pro Family Legislators Conference, where he opened the conference on a talk, A Tale of Two Cities, and today's the second day, and uh, we're right in the middle of uh, of part two here. So let's jump right back in with David. You, you go even to so many of these names. I mean, if I start just calling names, most we don't recognize, but they're all there because they did something significant. I'll show you one guy in particular I like. This guy is a guy named Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell is from New Hampshire. Wentworth Cheswell, black man elected to office in a white community in 1768. So he becomes a, an elected official in New Hampshire in 1768. He's reelected for the next 49 years in New Hampshire. He held political office. He held eight different political offices in New Hampshire. 
So having a black elected official in 1768, that's pretty significant. Yeah, but that's not even close to first. You got to go back to somebody like Matthias de Souza. Matthias de Souza, a black man who lived in Maryland, and in 1641, his white community in Maryland elected him to be a state representative in 1641. Wait a minute. 1641, we're electing black individuals to office in America. By the time you get to 1876, we've elected more than 1,000 black representatives into office across America. Now, just to put that in perspective, Great Britain never gets beat up for being racist. When's the first time Great Britain elected a black official to office? 1987. Or let's take somebody like Russia. It's 2010 for Russia. 2008 for Italy. It's 1641 for us, and we're the bad guys in the world? That shows how little we know our own history. See, we weren't doing critical race theory 30 years ago because we knew too much of our own history for anybody to be able to get away with it. It just wouldn't happen. We don't know that history anymore. And so we literally are historically illiterate. And so on. And this, there's stories like that with every one of those faces, so many other portraits we didn't have space to put up there. So civil rights, pilgrims really kind of blazed a trail on that. Public education. Of course, these guys are escaping from, from tyranny in England at the, at the price of their life if they stay. And so they brought their kids with them, but they want their kids educated. They don't want their kids being barbaric over here. So they start creating schools. The first public school law is passed in 1642, another one is 1647. They're printed in the code of 1650. This is also the code that has the, the anti-slavery laws, the man all this is the, their legal stuff. And if you look at their legal stuff, the first public school law ever passed in American history passed by those guys up there at that point, and it's called the Old Deluder Satan Law. That's an interesting title for a public school law. And it says when you get 50 children into a community, you have to build them, you have to get them a teacher. When you get 100 children in a community, you have to build them a school. And so when you look at why they would want their kids educated, it says here under schools, it says, it being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures as before. See, Satan's whole purpose is to keep us out of the Bible. And that's what he did for all those years. And that's why we had all those atrocities. We're not going to let that happen in this new land. We're going to make sure everybody knows the Bible so that we don't get into these same kind of government atrocities that happen elsewhere. So this is the start of public education in America is this law, this first public school law. And of course, they wanted everybody to know the Bible, which is why they educated both boys and girls. Try finding that in Europe, and that advanced civilized state of Europe didn't happen. You'll find that the highest literacy rate for women was in Massachusetts. It was higher than anywhere in Europe, which is amazing. A backwoods colony of Massachusetts where you don't have any of the civilized stuff, a higher literacy rate for women than what they have in all the high courts across Europe, yep, because they wanted everybody to know God's word. So education is a big thing for them. Now, if I jump forward 170 years, I'm going to take New Jersey because New Jersey's up there. That 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 area of you, you've you've got Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut and New Hampshire and New Jersey. All those were founded as very devoutly religious colonies with practicing religious people, not like Jamestown colony. They're practicing religious people, and so all of you from your state, you've got public records that go back to your, your days. I mean, Texas, we've got records that go back to the colony time. Uh, you may have saw, seen over at the museum today uh, the actual beginning of, of the state of Texas. It was a, the, the Austin colony and the 10 provisions he had to do to be a colony here in Texas. That is the founding document of, of Texas. 
but we have the records from Texas as, as a colony, the Texas as an independent nation, then Texas as a state, and all of you do. You've all got records. You can go back and you can see how many public schools there were in whatever year and how many kids were at school and what they were teaching. I just chose New Jersey to show what was happening up in that part of the country in 1816. This is the State Board of Education report on what's happening in the schools. And they're going to talk about what, are, what they call the first and second classes. We would call that the first and second grades. They didn't do grades. They did classes. And so you see here, it's all the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson in the Catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. That's public schools. And what's the text of the preceding Sabbath? Well, Pastor Tim here, whatever he preached on last Sunday, we're going to memorize all the verses he talked about last Sunday. That's the text of the preceding Sabbath. Now, they did point out that one of the kids they had in the state was a lot sharper than the rest of the kids. Uh, they pointed out, they said, one of the scholars has committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. What grade? Oh, yeah, first and second grade. That's what we're talking about here. Now, he's the smart kid. We all know smart kids like not everybody's a smart kid, and that's what they pointed out. They said the majority have committed to memory the gospel by John. Wait a minute. So nearly all the first and second graders in New Jersey in 1816 memorized the Gospel of John. Yeah, but we had one kid that was so smart, he also had 30 more chapters out of Psalms and Psalms 119, but everybody does the Gospel of John. I don't know that I've met many adults in their life who've memorized the Gospel of John. And this is second grade public schools in New Jersey in 1816. Again, look at education up in that area. So lots of examples. Um, go to due process. Due process we have the due process clauses in the Constitution, the Fourth and the Eighth Amendment, so the right to confront your accuser. It's how legal cases work. It's how trials work, et cetera. And this is where Massachusetts really kind of has a fallout here. They don't do great on this one initially. Um, that's why any textbook you look at, American Textbook Day, will talk about the intolerant Christians there in Massachusetts. How do we know they're intolerant? Because they had the witch trials. You see, they came here to America to practice what they believe, but when people disagreed with them, they started killing those people. And so what you'll see is with that, and, and by the way, Massachusetts at this point is not what Massachusetts was when the P Pilgrims got there. Uh, you see the, the yellow boot kind of down at the bottom there? That yellow boot, that is the Plymouth colony. That's where the Pilgrims were. That pink colony up top, that's the Massachusetts Bay colony of the Puritans 10 years later. So the Pilgrims start the, the Plymouth colony in 1620. The Puritans start the Massachusetts Bay colony in 1630. Those two colonies came together in 1692 to become the, the state of Massachusetts or, or the colony of Massachusetts singly. So where we're talking about the witch trials is not down in the Plymouth area, but it is in the Bible-believing area a little north of that, north of Boston up towards Salem. That's where they're having the witch trials. So when you look at the witch trials and see what was going on, these witch trials in Salem, Apparently, 27 people died as a result of all the proceedings with the witch trials. And those witch trials lasted about 18 months up there. Now, that's significant. Keep these numbers in mind, 27 deaths, 18 months, because across the world at that time, witch trials were happening everywhere. This is like slavery wasn't happening only in America. It was happening in every nation of the world. And so let's look at the whole world situation to compare things. Same thing here. So when you look at the witch trials that were going across the rest of the world, how long did they last across the rest of the world? Over a century. They went for more than 100 years of witch trials in Europe. So America had 18 months. So maybe the most important question is, why did 
did it only last 18 months? Why did they come to an end so quick in Massachusetts? And the answer is really pretty simple. There were three Christian leaders, Reverend John Wise, Reverend Increase Mather, and Reverend Thomas Brattle went to Governor William Phipps. He said, Phipps, you're just copying Europe. You're not doing what the Bible says on criminal justice stuff. You're not using due process. You're just doing what everybody else is doing. And when they showed it to him, took him through it, Phipps goes, you're right. And so Phipps called in Judge Samuel Sewell and said, Sewell, we gotta stop the trials. We're, we're, not, we're just doing everybody else. That's not what the Bible says to do. And so they stopped the trials. And it's interesting, over the next month, they tried to do what they could to make things right. Uh, for example, once the witch trials were stopped, they, they took everyone who had been involved in those or accused in any way legally, and they took their name off the books. They said these people should not have been accused because this wasn't done the right way. So they took their names off the legal books so they would not appear as being perpetrators of something that was done wrong. Then after they took all the names off the books, those, and by the way, let me even back up further than that because Sewell made the mistake of having these trials. He's just doing what Europe is doing, just following the judges there. Sewell actually stood up in church and in front of the church confessed, been guilty of shedding innocent blood, which will bring God's judgment on a people. And so he stood up and confessed his sin openly in front of the congregation. Um, also, Governor Phipps called a colony-wide day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. He got to avert God's judgment for having shed innocent blood. That'll bring God's judgment on the nation. Bible says so. So they have a colony-wide day of repentance. Uh, they took the legal name, they took the names off the legal books, and then they took the families that had been involved and paid them all restitution. They wanted to do what they could to make it right for those families they'd done something wrong with. So we hear about the witch trials, we don't hear about the rest of it. Let's go back to this intolerant Christian stuff for a bit. I mentioned witch trials are going across the world. Do you know how many people were killed in the European witch trials? Over 500,000. 27 in America, and every single American textbook will talk about the 27 and never mention the 500,000. That's not that Christians are perfect. They make mistakes, but you know what? Here, we got out of them a whole lot faster than the rest of the world because we were more committed to doing what the Bible said than the rest of the world was. We had people who came here and spent hours a day in the Bible conforming their life to what it said rather than making the Bible conform to what they already believed. So it's significant. This is where so many of the due process rights come from. And by the way, Justice Stephen Breyer, I've had the, the blessing of being involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court in some way, shape, fashion, form, capacity. And in reading one of Justice Breyer's decisions, and Justice Breyer is the most recent justice who retired from the Supreme Court. And Justice Breyer, I think we can safely say, is probably the most secular justice in the history of the Supreme Court. Probably pretty easy to say that. So Stephen Breyer, in a decision, he said, well, just reading the decision, he said, well, we all know that the due process rights came out of the Bible. And I was taken back and said, really? What's your source? And so I looked at his footnote, and his footnote went to Federal Practice and Procedure, Volume 30. If you practice federal law, there's a series of federal law books that go from here out the door and across the parking lot. I mean, just a long series of books. But Volume 30 deals with some of these due process rights. And there are nearly 20 pages in Volume 30 that show how that the pilgrims and Puritans used John 8.10 to guarantee your right to confront your accuser. So the right to confront your accuser that we have in the Bill of Rights is actually out of John 8.10. Other rights the same way. The, the right to have, compel witnesses in your behalf, Proverbs 18.17. The right to be able to speak in your own defense, look at Acts 22.1. Turns out that so many of those due process rights literally 
came from biblical teachings. So when we talk even about due process, although Massachusetts, the Pilgrim, Pilgrims didn't, but the Puritans got it wrong for a period of time, but they got out of it faster than the rest of the world. These due process rights, I, I mean, this is what the Pilgrims gave to us. And we don't spend hardly any day studying the Pilgrims. And if we do, we misportray them and try to make them look like the 1619 Project. So when you look at Pilgrims, I told you that virtually every time you see a painting of these guys, it has the Bible with them. Every one of these guys got a Bible with them. They, they, were, they were called the people of the book for that very reason. They were definitely evangelical professing Christians, but unlike Jamestown, they were also very biblical Christians. They tried to put that into practice and live by it, and they changed their culture to make it match what the Bible said rather than trying to wrap the Bible around the culture they already had. And that's a big difference, and that's a big distinction. So this contrast that, that I'm making between 1619 and 1620, it's not that that's a really cool contrast to make, and I came up with something. No, no. Go all the way back to 1888. This is what we would call a wall chart. So, you know, in schools, you'd have these charts on the walls, and this is kind of like one of those. And this 1888 chart, you'll see that there's two, two things that come across America. And what you see here is there's two ships that have landed. Over here, 1619, we'll say that's Jamestown. That's a ship landing at Jamestown. And up here in 1620 is the ship landing at Plymouth. Now, if you take that 1619, it's hard for you to see even close, much less at the back, there's a circle there. So let me blow that circle up. You see that circle right there with the ship? Outside the circle, it says mammon. What's that? Oh, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 6. Mammon, that's a love of money. And on the inside of that circle, it says $1. Oh, so they're showing us a coin. They're showing us that Jamestown was founded as an economic colony. It was all about making money. That was, that's how it was founded. So when you look at that, there's a lot of bad stuff that came out of that. And so they say God's curse of slavery. And as you go across that, I'll just read it from here. It's avarice, it's lust, it's ignorance, it's superstition, it's, it's uh, ambition, it's secession. It's the Dred Scott decision, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It's the, uh, the, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. It's the Missouri Compromise of 1820. It, that's all the bad stuff that came out of that part of the country. Now, that's what the 1619 Project wants to make you think all of America is. Okay, folks, we're out of time for today. You've been listening to David Barton speak at the Pro-Family Legislators Conference. His topic that opening night, A Tale of Two Cities. Tomorrow we will get the conclusion, so don't miss tomorrow here on Wall Builders. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Wall Builders. We stand undivided forever.